alleviate the pain. We, we cherish and care for our bodies. You're right. There's a sense in which we are, I mean, Paul makes it clear, sexual morality, the sins against your own body. You're dishonoring your body in whatever form of sexual morality you're engaged in. Then you go further to people uh, trying to pretend they're other than they are. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Paul is trying to make a statement. No one, as much as, just as you recognize how everyone takes measures to care for and cause their body not to be in pain, do the same thing with your wife because she's bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? Well, I'm trying to find something here. Um, anything else? Okay. Then I will go further. I didn't want to make a huge deal of this because it's not in Paul's um, focus here, but I do want to consider the importance, further importance of households. Can we go to 1 Timothy 3? 1 Timothy 3. I, I really believe that uh, our households and how they, how they are conducted is of greater importance than we tend to think. Um, we value privacy, we value autonomy. I mean, I think there's probably few topics you could offend someone more easily than to criticize their marriage or how they're conducting their marriage or to criticize their parenting or ask any questions about that. Those are usually the topics that are hands-off. Uh, and yet, one of the things, and I don't mean criticize rudely, I mean draw on the question how someone's parenting, how someone's being a husband, how someone's being a wife. And yet one of the implications of all of us hearing all of this teaching is our lives and our homes ought to be open for inspection. We ought to all know that we all know this. I mean, one of the beauties of this is not only does my wife um, hear her instructions, but she also hears mine, and I know she's heard mine, and she knows that I've heard hers, and so there's some mutual accountability in that sense. If you look at the qualifications for leadership, they come right out of the home. I don't know how you could know if somebody's qualified for leadership in the church if you weren't in their home. So let's, I just want to show you what I mean here. So 1 Timothy 3. And again, these qualifications are pretty mundane. It's not, well, someone's qualified to be an elder if they've led 27 people to the Lord, if they've taught through four books of the Bible. It's like, they don't drink too much. They're not a jerk. Let's just, let's just read. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. A husband of one wife, which I would take to mean a faithful husband, a one-woman type of guy, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and then watch the movement from his household to God's household. So the, the picture of the church as God's household is the logic right here. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now that logic may not be as clear. Jump over to verse 14. I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul 
absolutely in this letter has the picture of the church as God's household in mind. And so the logic back to verse 5, if you don't know how to manage your own household, how will you manage God's household? That's their logic. Conversely, if you're doing well in managing your own household. So Paul is making a point clear that skill, excelling in managing your own household, demonstrates your qualifications to begin managing God's household. You get the one-to-one nature? And so there's a lot of continuity here. It means the same skills. It means the same values, the same qualities in the one serve in the other. A parent who can't discipline their own child, how are they going to deal with rebellious people in the body? A person who can't shepherd and lead his own family, how is he going to shepherd and lead in the church? That, that's the rationale. This is God's household. So we can see the same thing also with deacons, right? So verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith of the clear conscience. And let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And he, and he goes on. So the household is the crucible in which our ministry is being done, our, our maturity is being seen. And I know from having a, a number of people live with my wife and I over the years, the household is where people see the real deal. You want to know about my character? Talk to someone like Greg Rolak who's lived with me. I can, put on a, I can put on a good face on a Sunday morning for a few hours. But if people are in your home, you know, they, they see the real deal. They see the real you. Um, and so for that reason, I think it, it matters immensely. God puts a lot of importance on this. The God who exists in a family relationship, a father and a son, creates us. And then he puts us in the families and the church is his household. We're adopted sons and daughters. All this stuff really does matter. So I, I, I can't stress this enough. We, we care about you know, seminary and training, and that's good. The qualification able to teach is a necessary qualification, the qualification of holding faithfully uh, the, the mystery of the faith. But the eight of the qualifications are household qualifications. And when you're right, let me make one other point here. When you're talking, you ask, okay, back a bit further. When you make a rhetorical question, a rhetorical question can serve different functions in different contexts. When you're talking, you ask a rhetorical question to gauge how people are tracking with you, right? Right? Yeah, see, you guys just nodded, and I gauged your tracking with me with my rhetorical question. But rhetorical questions don't work that way in writing. When you, when you use a rhetorical question in writing, where you're not there to gauge the response it's usually when you most expect your reader to amen it's the high point your strongest point and that's what paul's doing here look at verse five again out of all the qualifications and all the things he has to say i think he most assumes his point is obvious in verse five for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for god's church it's a rhetorical question and, and i think that indicates that's kind of the high point we're the most obvious, from Paul's point of view, of the things he has to say. We're supposed to be like, duh, of course. And especially when you see in verse 15 that he's calling the church God's household, it makes sense. You manage the lesser household, prepares you to manage the greater household. So, um, any, any questions on that? Anything there? I, because Paul doesn't make that point in, in Ephesians, I didn't want to make a big point of the message, but I'm, I'm again and again driven by 
the importance of the home, and I'm more and more impressed of men and women when I see into their home how they're doing. I used to be impressed by people who quote things, and people who read, read things. Now I'm impressed by, that's a gentle and quiet spirit, which is beautiful in God's sight. Wow, that's awesome. Or look at that godly older man. I, I'm impressed with those types of things more and more now. Um, questions on any of that? You guys are not that talkative today. Okay. Oh, you've been through a storm. Got it. What, Greg? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is something I hinted on this morning. I didn't want to make a big point of it this morning, but open up to Deuteronomy 11. Um, I, I want to uh, talk about children in the worship service. One of the reasons I think it's good that we, we have uh, more and more now including children in worship service. And I think it's a part of a biblical pattern that we see. And let, and let me give the other side of this. I think, I think it's also equally important we have submissive, behaved children in the worship service. It's not that we just bring them in however they handle. The Bible is equally clear about the importance of, of uh, a lack of chaos and other things. But it is biblical. I mean, and I've talked to people, and just, wouldn't it be easier? And it gets back to pragmatism. But so Deuteronomy 11, okay? Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking to them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking in the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land, the Lord your God, your Father, to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. And jump to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. Verses 12 to 13. Well, go back to verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the, the book of Deuteronomy. The sons of Levi who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel... And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, that's the same year that the slaves go free, um, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. So every seven years, the whole nation of Israel gathers together and they read the book of Deuteronomy out loud. Possibly, I've heard some argue, the entire books of Moses, but at least the book of Deuteronomy. So if you think our services are long, this is just the Bible reading. The Bible reading is going to take a couple hours, okay? Um, you shall, in the place I will choose, you shall read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, now look at this, men, women, and little ones, in the sojourn within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord our God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So it's not hear it, then go home and teach your kids. The kids, the little ones, are present to hear this. Go over to Joshua 8. Hold 
there. Nope. Eight. Starting in um, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. It is written in the book of the Law of Moses. An altar of uncut stone upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificial peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priesthood, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. This is what Deuteronomy tells them to do. They're going to recite the blessings and the cursings. You can go back to Deuteronomy 30 and read about it. And, um, yeah, we'll get there. Um, verse 34, and afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So Moses said, here's the pattern I want you to follow, and Joshua does it go to um ooh, let me see got two more references here go to nehemiah 8 nehemiah 8 we're almost done um, nehemiah chapter 8 Okay, and we'll just start at the beginning of the chapter. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded them. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Uh, so, so I think there's I think there's room that um, nursery and stuff make, can make sense. But when you're dealing with kids who can in any way understand what they're hearing, what we see consistently is they're there in the assembly. They're there hearing it. I skipped over Second um, Chronicles twenty thirteen, which is another one. I'll just read briefly to you. Second Chronicles twenty thirteen. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now we got children and little ones. Um, and then Ephesians 6, 1. I mean, just think of the implications. I mean, how many churches today, if we were to read the book, would the children not be present to hear Paul's instruction? And the implications are huge. Not that we can't have separate, set-aside things, but I think, it is, I think the pattern we get is it's good for us all to be together. It's good for the children, for the males, the females, the slaves, the free, the husbands, the wives, to be together to hear God's word. And I think it's, it's a good pattern we're following. I just wanted to tease that out a little further. Any, any questions with any of that? Lucas. And it told Israel, and Israel they were talking about in their message from two chapters from by Genesis to Exodus, Moses tell the people in the beginning about slaves 
were are bad because they talk about slaves can be murder or something in the book of the Bible says about Exodus and Moses talked about when the disciples came, when they were talking about, you know, he was afraid of Jesus. So are you asking about Moses talking about slavery and is slavery good or bad? Is that, is that what you're basically getting at, if I understand? We're going to get there in a few weeks, but we can crack that a little bit. Um, one, of the, one of the issues that the church often cringes at and, and tries to explain away is, is absolutely in the, in the law of Moses, there is, um, there is law about slavery, about slaves. And we, we have to deal with that, or we will get to that shortly. Um, Paul does not tell these slaves to rise up and overthrow their masters and you know, sneak out. He tells them to serve them heartily. And, and one of the things we've got to figure out is that our, in America, we almost exclusively, when we hear the term slave, think of the, uh, the slavery in our country, in our history, chattel slavery, race-based slavery. Um, and that is, I think, rightly ungodly, wicked, perverse, terrible, but one of the things we are going to have to get, come to grips with is the fact that slavery as an institution, um, at least in some sense, we're going to be hard-pressed to say is intrinsically wrong. And I'll defend that in a moment. The reason why I say that is, no, no, let me... Intrinsically as opposed to... What I mean by intrinsically is in every instance, in every place, in every possibility, it's always wrong. I don't think we can say that. If it is intrinsically wrong, then you're going to have a hard time with Christ saying, making that of himself, with Paul saying we are slaves of Christ, if we're talking about something fundamentally wicked and corrupt. Um, let me give you an example in, in the Old Testament. If you defeat an enemy and you can put them to death by the sword, and they say, why don't we instead come and serve you? That, that can be, I think, a, a fair uh, arrangement. Or another scenario, um, I think you could define in many senses people who are incarcerated in our, in our prison system. Well, let, me, let me back up a here more. What's the intrinsic fundamental aspect of slavery? I think it would be the notion of being someone's property, being under a sovereign will, having no right, no power, no claim to the produce of your work, something like that. So if that's the intrinsic notion, then in, in many respects, people in prison, they don't have a control of where they go. There's a sense in which that slavery is servitude. Now, biblically, Lucas, God only allowed that to happen for seven years at a time. So there wasn't this lifelong slavery. There wasn't this your mind forever. You could get into debt, and one way out is you could sell yourself to someone as their servant. And, and we saw in a couple weeks ago, God says, you don't deal harshly with them. And when they go out in seven years, you provide for them well. Now, in that types of context, defining something as slavery, that could, you could see how that could be a useful or good thing. So we've got to not just think of the American South when we think of slavery and realize that it's an institution that for people in severe debt or in severe want can be a helpful or useful thing. Now, in one sense, I think this probably wouldn't exist outside of a fallen world. I don't think before the fall there'd be this notion. 
But um, it, it's hard to say those things because it's so popularly unpopular. And yet, as you read, so one of the things that was actually really instructive to me was just how good, um, how good and wise God is in the law. As you actually go past some of these things, you couldn't... You, Part of the ugliness of our version of slavery is if you bought a slave, you had them and their kids and their grandkids with being released, generational slavery. Here, you've got the year of release. We just read about it. So at that point, everyone's freed. And yet the law assumes there are going to be some people that so enjoy the situation, they're going to voluntarily put an all through their ear to maintain or remain being the servant of somebody. And that's, I think, the same reason why the ESV doesn't translate slave-slave. They usually use bond-servant because they want to put some distance between American chattel slavery, which, again, let me say, was a, a terrible abomination. This notion of owning someone and their children and their grandkids forever and ever and ever, as opposed to what the Bible's pointing out in certain circumstances can be useful or helpful, where you only get, at the most, six, seven years of someone's service whether the Bible's against man-stealing and kidnapping and those types of things. So normally what you're dealing with are conquests in war or people who, because they've gotten themselves in such an economically weak position, have voluntarily become, someone's, become part of someone's household. Now we're going to deal with that more in the coming weeks, but that's, that, that's the biggest thing is to don't just think America. Think in the broader sense and let the Bible inform some of these categories. I, I know I might have just said something controversial, so anyone want to weigh in with any of that? You guys are talkative. Oh! Oh, Simeon. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I will be happy to answer that question if we have no other questions regarding what we've covered this morning. Any other questions this morning before we go to communion? The, the short answer for that, Simeon, is this. Yeah, the strongest language for the real presence, this is my body, whoever drinks my body, this is real drink, real food, is John 6. Turn to John 6. Nowhere in John 6 or in John's gospel at all is the link made to communion. I think we, impor- I think we import that. So in the, in the, in the historical narrative, what, when in the narrative of Jesus, when in the story, in the historical movement, does Jesus institute communion? It's the night before he's murdered, right? So we know in John 6, that hasn't happened yet. So no one listening to Jesus would make that connection, right? Nowhere in John's gospel does he make that connection. And so I think we read communion language into John 6 wrongly when Jesus gives us the key to the metaphor. The key to understanding John 6, I believe, is verse 35. Jesus is going to talk extensively in this discourse about eating and drinking. What do they equate to? And we're so familiar with the synoptic gospels. We go, that's communion, except... Jesus gives us the metaphor key. And if we, if we don't import Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we recognize this is months or years before the Last Supper, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what is equated with eating? Coming to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, you won't hunger. What's equated with drinking? Believing in Jesus. So if you come to him, you'll be filled with food. If you believe in him, your thirst will be quenched. So if you take John on John's own terms, we get a key to the symbolism right here that makes perfect sense. And in John's terms, coming to him is eating and believing in him is drinking. Now, I do think we could then take a further step and say, isn't there a sense in which taking communion, pictures are continually re-coming to for sustenance Jesus? Well, sure it does. I think there's a complementary sense. But in this first instance, I think this has nothing to do with communion and everything to do, according to Jesus, with believing and coming to him. So I think what happens is we're so used to communion language, we just assume that's what's going on here. And I don't see anything in the broader or immediate context to suggest it. And certainly in the historical narrative flow, nobody listening to him would make that connection. So that's... But the other piece to answer your question about why we take a memorial view is where Jesus does institute communion. And he, so, so go to Luke, right? Go to Luke. Um, I tried to make this point when we got through Luke 21. No, it's not 21. It's 19, I think. Um, maybe it is. Let me see. Where is it? Oh, no. It's 22. Luke 22. So in Luke 22... Um, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here's my question, Simeon. Would anyone in the room with Jesus at that moment be confused about what was in their hands when he said, This is my body? Jesus is standing in front of them. I don't think anyone's going to think, Well, this is really Jesus. I think the metaphor and the symbolic picture would be obvious. Nobody in the room with him that I could even imagine, would be confused about what's going on. Um, he's taking a meal which had a symbolic meaning about their departure from, from uh, Egypt, right? So they, they made unleavened bread because they left in haste. And they ate bitter herbs with the Passover meal. There's a Passover lamb that was sacrificed. Here's a meal laden with symbolic meaning. And Jesus takes part of this meal and standing in front of him says, this is my body. I don't think anyone in the room would think transubstantiation. I, still, I can't conceive anyone in that room is like, really, he's there in front of us and he's there on the bread. I think they'd all get, he's taking a symbolic meal and he's giving it new symbolic significance. So normally when you get to the real presence and transubstantiation or consubstantiation, it's by taking, the strongest statements are John 6. My body is real meat, my blood is real drink. And the insistent language of John 6 John nowhere makes those connections that I can see. And then when you go to the actual institution accounts, I couldn't imagine anyone being confused about what was taking place. 
So that is my five-minute answer to why we believe the Lord's Supper is a memorial and a symbolic meal and not the real thing itself. And again, not that symbols aren't important. God cares greatly about signs and symbols, but I do believe it is a sign and symbol. Sure. The early church in Acts met house by house, day by day, and occasionally corporately. Um, so part of that, and, and again, I will, I will, I believe there's an entire message that we did on communion. When, in my first couple of years here, tried to hit major Christian life issues, like what is communion, what is baptism? I'd refer you to that. I would say biblically, any group of believers that are part of a body— it would not be inappropriate for them in the right circumstances to share in communion. It's most natural to do it when we all come together. The, the, the corporate instructions we get are in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and Paul encourages us, the more the better, right? But they're meeting day by day, house by house, eating bread. I believe they're probably celebrating communion daily, in a sense. Um, and yet they also gather together it, on Solomon's portico with a couple thousand of them. And so the, the early church had a sort of small cell group model. They'd meet house by house, and they'd have a larger corporate meeting. From that, I, I would personally have no objection in the right circle. Like, let's just say in the early weeks of COVID before we were meeting, and that the most corporate you could get would be 10 or less people, right? Um, yeah, that, that might be a wholly appropriate reason to, okay, this is as many believers as we can get together. Let's celebrate the Lord's presence. Let's celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. That could be great. My only hesitation would be if you're moving towards only smaller groups and avoiding the bigger groups where Paul makes it clear, look, eat at home, wait for everyone to show up. I'm, to me, communion, because communion also pictures, according to 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians 10. There are horizontal realities that are represented in communion as well as the vertical realities. So vertically, we declare the Lord's death, burial, resurrection until he comes. Vertically, we, we declare we are those who feed and drink on Christ through coming to him by faith. And therefore, we are picturing his, he will hold us fast. He, he feeds and sustains us. But there's also horizontal realities. Remember, even last week, we talked about how on the cross, not only does God reconcile us to him, but he reconciles us to each other. That is visible in communion as well. Okay? So look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a... And the word translated participation there in the ESV is the Greek word koinonia, and it could just as easily be translated a fellowship of the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation or a fellowship of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and then we get a horizontal truth, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Um, so there's horizontal realities of our unity and our oneness. Even though we are many, we are one because we're eating the same bread and we're drinking the same cup. Um, this is one of the reasons why if, if I had my druthers, and I don't think I ever will, <laughs> um, I like the notion of one loaf, one cup, because that imagery is lost with my individual serving. Now, I know we get all sorts of hygienic blessings because of it, but you lose the imagery of what Paul is saying. Like, 
maybe we, one of the things Daniel was saying, we just make communion take longer. Maybe we could sometime like watch from one vessel, all the cups get poured. And that imagery of we all have a common source could, could more readily come through. And it's not that what we're doing is wrong. Signs are as useful as they clearly point to the things they signify. And so unless I'm reminding myself of this, there's nothing in our taking of the sign that, that visually indicates one loaf, one cup. I got to actively remind myself of that because it's not nearly as visible in how we do communion, which is, which is not that we're doing is wrong. It's simply, I got to work at reminding myself that the other things communion symbolizes because there are horizontal realities that, but that would probably be a lot easier in a house church, house by house. You know, have a loaf of bread, have a cup, pass it around. That'd probably be a lot more feasible in that context. And those realities would come through more clearly. Okay, Simeon, any other communion-related? I wasn't expecting to do a communion, but okay. Any other communion-related questions? Oh, all right. Okay, any other questions? At, oh, Carrie. Put some zip into it, Sophie. Okay, so when we were looking at Ephesians for, like, the next couple weeks, um, we looked at the household code, and specifically we're going to look at wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters. Mm. Um, What do we do if you're a person that looks at that and struggles in thinking, I don't really fit into those categories? So you're a grown child out of your parents' house, and you're unmarried, right? So that's the, the key... Okay, that's a great question. And thank you for reminding me, because we were talking before. Yeah, okay. There are at least, so, so there, there are quite feasibly people here who maybe, maybe you're a, a widow or a widower. Your kids are growing, they're out of the home. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple scenarios where virtually none of these instructions would directly apply to you. So why is it important that we hear it? Let me give three reasons why I think it's important. Um, First, for many who don't qualify for these, you may in the future. So there are many single people who will become married. There are many parents who will, I mean, there are many married people who will have children. They don't have children now. And so just because some of these hats don't fit on you, because some of these um, scenarios don't describe your current experience, doesn't mean they won't sometime in the future. So that would be one reason would be simply in preparation um, so my children can listen. Sophie and Abner can listen to the instructions for husbands and wives in, in the belief and the hopes that one day they will be husbands and wives. And even as their children, they can listen to the instruction for parents, um, both as, as a way of watching. And, that, and that's a humbling thing. My parents here, I'm supposed to raise them. My, my children here, I'm supposed to raise them. And they, they're going to have an idea of how faithful I am to that. But then preparing them as well. So that would be the first reason. The second reason would be we, how does the body build itself up in love according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16? How does the body build itself up in love? Ephesians four fifteen and 16. Somebody? Look. Speaking the truth in love. I need to know about the other roles so I can encourage them when I encounter them. So even for a widow, widower, a single adult, you're going to have friends who are going to need encouragement. They're going to need exhortation. They may even need slight correction 
in these situations. You're going to have friends who are children who need to honor and obey their parents. You're going to have friends who are husbands or wives who need to the encouragement to be faithful. Because our growth and our unity is a group activity, because we're not all individual autonomous islands, I, that's one of the reasons I need to know what everyone else's marching orders are so I can encourage them as well to be faithful. Uh, so that would be the second reason. And then the third reason would be that in the church, because the church is the household of God, in the church, single women are going to be mothers and single men are going to be fathers because in the church, we, we all are those relationships. So Jesus tells Peter when he says, see, we've left everything to follow you. He says, there's no one who's left husband or wife, mother or father, who will not in this life receive manyfold more and in the life to come eternal life. And so in Titus 2, it's just the older women who are to teach the younger women. They're mothering them. They're, 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 they're raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, in a sense. And so in the church, these roles will come. I mean, single people in Awana are going to take, be taking on that role as teaching, training up these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, no? And so in the church, these roles flesh out as well. So for at least those three reasons. One, just, just to re- reiterate, just because you're not currently in a role doesn't mean you won't be in the future. Second, your friends and others in the body need your instruction and exhortation uh, that you need to be aware of more than just your particular calling. And third, in the church, we'll be living out these roles as well. Um, so for all of those reasons, it's important. Greg, Sophie, put some zip into it. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say there, there's, almost, there's almost none of us that don't fit one of these categories. Uh, there, are, there are certainly men who never become married, never become parents, women, same thing. But there are very few of us that aren't slaves. Mm. Uh, in, the, in the respect mm. that I assume when you get to it, it's going to include being employed by someone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how many of us don't fit that category some of us don't, but but most of us do, and so there, of these uh, f- five or six categories, we almost all fit yeah. uh, some of them. You know, so besides the things you've already mentioned, uh, yeah. it's precious few of us that that don't, in fact, fit one or yeah. more of these categories. If you're a retired barren widower, widower, you, but no, no, fair enough. And then you've been here. Orphaned and orphaned. No, no, but, but still, the point simply being, we can all be tempted to think there are large chunks of this, to larger or lesser degree chunks of this, that don't directly apply. God still wants us to know them. And because it's more... Again, this gets back to our, our mentality. If it's not directly about me, I'm not sure I'm interested. Well, maybe it's about my neighbor and I need to encourage them, and so God wants to tell me what my neighbor needs to know how to do. Uh, as well. And so it's having a bigger picture than simply this, if it's not about me, I don't like it. Um, Then it's it's about all of us. I mean, all of these relationships are defined by other people. So a husband is defined as how he relates to his wife. A wife is defined as how she relates to her husband. Children are defined as how they, I mean, all of these, what is a wife? You can't answer the question without naming this other person. They're interrelational. Um, and so it's, it's a bigger picture than just the individual. Yeah. 
saw a hand over, no, did I see a hand? Yes. No. Oh, Marina Olsgaard. You're getting your steps in, Sophie. Just wanted to add to that, that um, a few Sundays you pointed out that in Ephesians 5.21, this whole section on the household code yeah. starts out actually with the verse where it says, and be subject to one another. Right. None of the relationships are mentioned there. Right. It actually spoke to you. Well, no, and then let, yeah, let, me, let me go further with that. that uh, I want to be careful I phrase this. Paul, Paul, the verb, the initial verb for being subject submissive being subject is actually given in the verse that's earlier as you as you just point out in 21 it does show up on its own in verse 24 but literally submitting to one another out of reverence for christ and i want to be careful because some people of a more liberal bent have tried to make this to flatten down these distinctions say really it's just what everyone's submitting to everybody no not at all we're doing it in very different ways but but the point is absolutely right the husband submits himself to his wife how by dying by, by, by giving himself up, by serving like Christ does. That's how he submits himself. I'm, think of it like I'm submitting myself to my wife by serving her this way. The wife does it directly by submitting herself to her husband. The, the child does it by honoring and obeying their parents. The parents do it by serving and training them up. In, in one sense, I almost thought of using this example, although I haven't thought it through enough to know if it's... I think it'll work. Think of it, you know, it's not about fundamentally worth or value. We keep coming back to that. We're like, oh, I'm less important. Imagine if we were casting a play and the director says, okay, your role is to play the servant and your role is to play the banker and your role is to play. In one sense, that's what God's saying. I've bought you, I've redeemed you, you're mine, and here's how I want you to serve me. And so he says to Serena, I want you to, I want you to try to honor and submit to this man. He's, it's going to be really hard because he's going to be a jerk. But that's the task I have for you. And he says to, the, to Sophie, your parents are going to be sinners and they're going to wrong you, but I want you to honor and obey those people. If you think of it as directly, unmediatedly coming from God, then it's not about because you're really important, you get to be in charge. It's here's the task I have for you. You know, um, and, and if we think about it in that sense, God calls some of us to martyrdom. He calls some of us to be suffering, languish in jails. He calls some of us to deal with difficult people. And he's, it's his choice to do that. I, I think that's a more helpful way of considering it that gets rid of the importance factor. You know, of, of oh, this must mean I'm not important. Not at all. Sometimes in the play, the person who has the lowliest position is the most important role, Right? Because God wants to image something. That's why I thought the play might be a helpful thing. A play is put on display that you can see something. If we're to image truth, then we might be imaging really important truth, even if our role is a lowly role, so to speak. That makes sense? Can I help? Okay. Okay. Anything else? I'll let you go 10 minutes early because we got done the sermons 10 minutes early and because we've been going long lately, so I'll try to be nice. Any other questions? I once. Oh, where? Jim Jorgensen has a question. <laughs> I was going to let it go when they said ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Get to lunch. There you go. Sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. So I wondered if you would address pragmatism 
versus submission or theology or submission to theology. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a big, it, it's a big topic, but I think that the tendency or the temptation would be to think through things, how does this affect me? If I do it this way, it'll A, be easier, it'll right. be less confrontational, there'll be peace. Right. But that's to say that human wisdom would be on par with God's revelation. Right. Well, let me, let me, so pragmatism simply cares about results. The ends justify the means. And so the assumption, here be, here be the wrong thinking. God only gives instructions about the household so we can have enjoyable, pleasant, peaceful households. And therefore, I think I found an easier way to get a pleasant, enjoyable, peaceful household, and we do it this way. And that's why I'm saying, well, it's not about you, first of all. That's not, God didn't make marriage to make me happy. He made marriage, we learn, to fundamentally picture something about Christ and his church, which all of a sudden means the how becomes important, right? So the method, the how that we achieve the goal is the whole point. See, if we're pragmatists, and I hear this from people, well, that just doesn't work for us. Or it's easier this way. And, and the assumption is, the unstated assumption Family and family relationships are useful and good only insofar as they're peaceful, they are happy and helpful and pleasant. But if God's purpose is, no, I want them to image something, I want the way a husband and a wife relate to picture things, then how they do that is incredibly important. And that means the purpose of marriage isn't first and foremost for the man and the woman, there is value there. God said it's good for them not to be alone, and it's about repopulating the earth and spreading out, taking dominion. But first and foremost, it's about picturing something with Christ. And uh, so let's let's just imagine a couple who are both the husband and the wife quite happily in a matriarchy. She she says I like leading, and the husband says I like following. You know, and they're perfectly happy. No one's upset about it. No, and let's just say it even works well for them in the sense of there's peace. And their, their, their family accomplishes things. They pay their bills on time. It works, right? So what? It, it, it's, it's warping the image it's supposed to picture. That, that's what I'm trying to get to. It's not first and foremost about an you know, aerodynamics efficient model. It's about a picture of something. And if we lose sight of that, we'll just get to this pragmatic focus of what works. And then we'll start negotiating. Well, maybe it'll work better if we do this. Maybe it'll work better. It's about picturing something first and foremost now i do believe that picture will give us benefits i'm not i'm not trying to say it's not helpful and it's not wise and it's not functionally helpful but if we think the sole purpose is it gets back to consumer mentality it's for my needs being met this is all about getting me what i want and then that's where people run into the problems when what if what god wants is to show you how okay husbands the wives keep thinking the wives have it the worst in the instructions but i think the husbands do how, how much mistreatment and unfaithfulness does Christ put up by his bride? <laughs> if you're going to love your wife as Christ loves the church, he will hold us fast. He, he keeps pursuing. He keeps enduring. He died on a tree for us. And I, my wife will joke sometimes, her job of modeling the church is a whole lot easier because, <laughs> because of how that standard isn't nearly so difficult, right? I mean, to whatever degree I am short with my wife, to whatever degree I'm not sacri- I'm mispicturing Jesus to everyone watching. 
that's huge. Um, and so how, how I endure and how I persevere and how I love and serve really matters because my children and my neighbor are supposed to be able to learn something about Jesus from me. And so if I say, well, this just works better for me, I begin to misrepresent Jesus. And that's like blasphemy, right? Um, in that sense, my wife doesn't have nearly as much... Uh, it's not as fearful, mispicturing that, well, in some sense, that the church can be so unfaithful that it's, you know, disobedient, that, you know, actually, you're doing a great job picturing the church, <laughs> you know. It, it's really, it gets really intimidating when, when God says, I intend, husbands, for your children and your wives and this world to learn something about my son and his love, service, and sacrifice for his bride from you and your example. Yeah, that, that's heavy reality. Okay, we are at time. Thank you much. Godspeed, and we will dive into this next week.